Good morning. Good morning, Hope Church. It's so good to see you all. Um, I always feel weird not having a mask on. Um, I think we're still in this weird limbo, but it's so great to see half your faces this morning and to be in a space together worshiping our God. If you're joining us from home, thank you for joining us. Uh, you don't, you're not just a viewer, but you're actually attending and joining what we're doing. So we're so glad you're with us this morning. Um, again, my name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Jersey City. Uh, it's my joy to share from God's word this morning. Um, but this morning, we're continuing in a series that we've entitled, This is Hope our part, our place in God's story. And in this series, we're looking at God's character, his people, his compassion through the scriptures to see what it means for us as Christians, to see what it means for us as a church to join what God is already doing. We don't do this independently. We don't do this just because it's nice to get together, although it is, but we do this because of who our God is and what he's already been doing. Last Sunday, Craig started the series talking about Genesis 1, God who created and God who called these things good, God who called us good. And it was such a rich reminder that we were made with intentional design. We were made in the image of God. Today, we're continuing on. And of course, I get to preach um, what I think is the more difficult sermon in this kind of couplet of talking about God. We're looking at Genesis 3, which is known as the fall, where everything went wrong, where sin enters the world, and there's a lot of pain. Um, so I say that with a smile, and we're looking at a hard text this morning, right? But before we talk about this text, before we dive into sin and this narrative and what has happened, I want to recognize something that I think is so important. Because I know today and even historically, the church and Christians and the language of sin, these conversations have, are not clean and just on a clean slate. These conversations have been places of pain, places of hurt. I don't want to insensitively simply talk about sin as what we believe, disregarding our experience, disregarding maybe wrong things that have happened to us from other Christians, from churches, from pastors in, in contexts like these. And so if you've been hurt by conversations around sin, and maybe if you're there today and just hearing the word sin causes kind of this, this traumatic kind of a recall, first, I want to say sorry. I want to say sorry. And second, I want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for engaging. And I hope that as we navigate this conversation as a church, we will grow in our understanding of God's love, God's grace, this thing that we call the good news. Because you see, while it's hard and uncomfortable to talk about sin, Christians must talk about sin. We have to. Otherwise, talking of Christ who sacrificed himself, who died on the cross for this ambiguous nothing, becomes really weird and really confusing and kind of sick. And the death of Christ, this gift, this grace of God only makes sense when we have a deeper understanding of sin. So this conversation of sin has to go hand in hand with our understanding of grace. Our faith and our spirituality isn't rooted in just feeling good about ourselves, but it's rooted in this story of redemption that God has initiated from the beginning. And so today with that, um, let's dive into this difficult text, yeah? Right. As we look at this opening kind of introduction to sin in the Bible, we're going to look at the sin itself, the effects, and the response. 
And so when we talk about this sin, this narrative, uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read from us from verse 1 to 19. And it's a touch long, but we'll, we'll kind of hit it as we go as well. So you can read along with me on the screen, on your devices at home, whatever you have. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Well, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And this is the word of God. And today we look at this, this narrative, and again, we're looking at the sin, the effects, and the response. And so this sin that we talk of, I don't know about you guys, if you grew up in the church and heard this story and saw illustrations of this story, the fruit that you have in mind is an apple, probably, right? And as a kid, I remember being so confused, like, is this like all apples? Like, if I eat an apple, like, and you know, we have this apple picking trip coming up, this outing, and I have to say, but here's, here's kind of the sad personal piece. I'm allergic to apples. Um, I will be there. It'll be a great time. So I hope you'll come out and hang out. If you're allergic to pitted fruits, we'll just kind of huddle together and do that and ponder the mysteries of Genesis 3. Um, but as a child, I remember thinking, is it, is it this apple that we shouldn't really be eating? But I was like, no, that's too easy. It's low-hanging fruit. Like, that can't be it, right? And Craig talked about this last week, that when we talk of the scriptures, especially these early narratives, these narratives of creation, 
We're not given all the answers. We're not given the ideology or the, you know, what happened when they ate the apple was the, or the fruit rather, was the fruit, was something different about it? Was like metabolically, was something happening? We're not given the answers to all of these questions. But what we are given is that God created everything. He called it good. He gave Adam this task and role to manage creation well, to fill the earth, to enjoy the garden, to enjoy him with one command, not to eat from this one tree. That's what we're giving. And the serpent comes, and again, we're not giving answers on the serpent. Are all serpents bad? Are all reptiles bad? We don't know. But this serpent comes and begins to coax Adam and Eve. And he questions, is that really what God said? Are you really going to die? I don't think so. And what he's doing is saying, hey, this God who made you, called you good, and you're journeying with and having this life with, he's not actually good. He's actually selfish. He's actually deceptive. He's actually withholding from you the capability to become like him. And you could overcome that if only you eat this fruit. And so Eve, it says that the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. And here I want to pause. I want to pause because I think there are so many times where we talk about this text or hear about this text and there's just not a good way to read it. The problem here is not the woman. I just want to clarify. It says Adam was there with her. Adam is given this responsibility right? They're in it together. Eve says, we were told, we were given this command. And even when God addresses Adam later, it's not Eve is terrible, like, why'd you listen to her? You really messed up. It's no, you listen to anyone else other than me, God, who gave you this command. The problem isn't the woman. The problem is that this act is a rejection of who God is. It's a rejection of this relationship and life that God has called good. This break in this relationship with sovereign creator, between sovereign creator and created humanity. Adam and Eve saw for themselves what they thought would be better. They made for themselves their own God in their hearts and, and made this decision to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to take control. I want to clarify here that when we talk about sin, sin is different from mere morality Sin is different from criminality. Sin is different even just from suffering in general. Sin is a religious word. And another religious word when we look at these early texts is shalom. Shalom is basically peace, peace of God. We might say is the way God intended things to be, which is a little lengthy, which is why I'm resorting to shalom. And there's an author, uh, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. He was the president of Calvin Theological Seminary. He puts it like this. Sin is anything that works against the shalom of God, the way God intended things to be. And God intended to have this beautiful and rich life and relationship with Adam and Eve, with humanity. And in eating from this fruit, breaking this command, they reject it. As Christians, we we turn to the Bible to have an understanding of what this shalom is, the way God intended things to be. We look at the, the days of creation, the commandments that God has given, and we wrestle with how this is good. But whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a religious person, spiritual person or not, we all have a sense that when we see things in this world, there are things that really aren't the way things should be. 
And this is the effect of sin. See, from this sin, Paul, the Apostle Paul, even says that sin entered through Adam. And this sin ripples through and it affects the way that we as humanity relate to God. It affects the way that we relate to ourselves, as Craig talked about last week. It affects the way that we relate to one another and uh, how we relate to the rest of creation. And throughout the Bible, we see that humanity decides for itself, just as Eve, Adam and Eve did. They decided for themselves what was better, contra God, despite what God said, against what God had said. Abraham and Sarah are promised a child and they laugh and they say, wait, this isn't possible. We're old. Like, what's going on? Let's figure out our own way because we need an heir and God has promised all of these things. So they use a concubine. They use Hagar to, to create an heir. Israel, God's people, after he leads them out of Egypt, establishes them as a people, leads them through even like big conflict with other nations. They suddenly decide, we want a king like all the other nations. And God says, I'm your king. But despite that, they say, we want what we think is good. You see, today we do the same thing. We live as though God doesn't matter. We live as though he has no authority or place in our lives. We reject this relationship that he has called his people to. Craig talked about it last week that even when we we view ourselves, our sense of value, we, we take on lies, we're stained by lies, bombarded by them in the world that we live in about our worth, what we need to do to, to, to be good enough. When God has created us, called us good. Even when it comes to how we relate to one another, you see it here, Adam and Eve, they play that blame game, right? Adam points and says, this woman whom you have placed here. And so he's not just blaming Eve, he's blaming God. He's like, it's your fault, right? And don't we do that? Let's be real. If you're a parent, I know you hit moments where your children might do things that surprise you to the point where you might go to your partner, spouse, or even your friend, maybe not your friend, right? But you say, hey, this child of yours, right? Guess what they did today, right? This ripple of sin affects the way that we relate to the world. Our work is hard and full of toil. We labor and sweat and are filled with stress and anxiety. Even the way we relate to to nature and resources and all of it is touched by sin. But all of these things God had originally created with this beautiful design and intention that humanity would enjoy him as sovereign creator. And that's the root of it all. See, when we talk about sin, it's easy to think like, okay, well, how bad is too bad? Is this really a sin? Or is this, am I okay? Like, where am I? The point of the conversation is that we're rejecting God and who he is. And this idea and talking about sin has to do with God. And so we look at God's response to this sin. And off the bat, it's important to say he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. Now hearing that, that might mean nothing to you in this room because in in our society, when we think of curses, all we think are like swear words that we shouldn't say, but are they really a big deal? Like that's the question that comes up. But in the Bible, when it talks of curses, it goes far beyond that. And without getting into so much of that detail, basically there's still hope. God has not forsaken Adam and Eve. He doesn't say, okay, you messed up, we're done, this is over. That's not what he says. And God does three things. First, he seeks them out. 
after they sin, right? There's no sign that says, okay, now they've sinned. Now, God, you have to go. He seeks them out. He's God. He knows what they've done. He knows all things, but he still comes to them asking, where are you? The second thing that God does, it's in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to read it for us again. And this is when he, he curses the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And here, we're not given a scientific explanation of why people don't like reptiles or like a mandate that anytime you see a snake, you need to stop it. That's not what we're given. What we're given is the earliest faint, the earliest sign of the gospel, that God is going to solve this problem. This, this descendant, this offspring of Eve, it points to someone God will send who will be bruised on the heel, struck by this enemy, this serpent, but will in the end be victorious. From the beginning, God's scope was grace. God's scope was to solve this problem so that his people could have life with him. So God starts in the beginning to to pursue man when they've fallen. He talks of the end, but he also does something in the in-between. You see, after this, when, when Adam and Eve are cast out from the garden of evil, it says that the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. I remember as a child when I would do something bad and be sent to my room or be in trouble, right? My parents weren't doing that just to like cast me out and be like, okay, suffer for what you've done, right? They didn't stop like feeding me, housing me, or, you know, they took care of me and it was a way for me to learn. And God not only pursues Adam and Eve in the beginning, he not only has the end in mind, but through the journey, he provides for them and says, I'll clothe you, I'll be with you. You're not cursed or forsaken. Now, the rest of Scripture is God pursuing and confronting his people about this same sin that takes so many different forms, this rejection of God. And he calls them back to himself. He promises that he will be the one to make it right and that he is with them through the journey. And you see, God's heart for Adam and Eve is his heart for us today. God calls us to confront our sin to know that he doesn't curse or forsake us. Rather, he pursues us, reminds us that the work of the cross is enough and that he's still with us through the journey. And in addressing our sin, we're not called to dread the grave, but we're called to marvel at the grace of God. Even as a church, this is foundational to everything we do. Here at Hope, we say that our mission is to share the tangible love of Christ, love that makes impact both in my life, in yours, in our community, for this city, and for this world. And so our hope is that we would marvel and and grow to know God more deeply. 
Our hope is that in our community, in our hope groups, in everything we do as a community, we would live out and share this love with one another. We would remind one another because it's so easy to forget, so easy to fall back into lies that I need to earn my worth, that I'm not good enough, that God can't truly love someone like me, whether it's because of my history, where I am, or what others say about me. And in our compassion, we strive to share God's love with others, to live out this beautiful design, this shalom. In the Bible, the word shalom is not just a noun of peace, but it's a verb where we are partaking in in creating and reestablishing and working towards it. And that's what we're called to do. So today, as we conclude, I want to invite you to pray. As our team leads us in song, Would you take time to bring your life to God? Be reminded that he knows you just as he knew Adam and Eve. He knows you in your best moments. He knows you in the mistakes, the things that you regret, the things that you hide away, the things that you feel too shameful to talk about. And he's not looking to curse or forsake you. Thank him for his love that he's patient with us even when we fumble through, when we continue to sin. And lastly, as we respond, would you pray for our church, especially if this is a church you call home? Ask that we would embody this love well because in our world, in our society, in our country, we have so many poor representations of God's love. So many poor and mishandled conversations around sin, and we're not immune to that. We're not. So would you pray that God would humble us and give us the strength to more boldly and richly live out his love? Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the gift of your grace, that because of it, even in the face of sin, even in the face of our failure and our rebellion, Lord, we don't have to run, we don't have to sit in shame, but Lord, we can turn to you knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you're good on your word, knowing that you've made the promise to solve this problem of sin, that ultimately shalom rests in your hands, that it is your doing, and we get to join in seeing that happen. Lord, I pray that you would meet with each of us wherever we are, wherever, whatever comes up in our hearts and our minds when we hear sin or when we talk about it. I pray especially for those who've been hurt by these conversations and ask that, Lord, you would reach out in the tender way that only you can to comfort, to strengthen, to call many to you. And we ask that as a church, we would always recognize that this is why we do what we do, because of who you are. So may we share your love with the world around us. Be with us as we respond and as we continue. In your precious name we pray, amen.